Let's give our attention to God's word. First John 1, 1 through 10. First John 1, 1 through 10 says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So let's pray tonight before we consider it further. Heavenly Father, these are your words. And so we pray now, like we pray every week, that you would be with us tonight by your Holy Spirit to teach them. That you would illuminate the truth to us. Lord, that you would cause us, uh, that you would make us what we're not. That you would teach us what we don't know. That you would change us. That you would show us something of ourselves and our sin and even more... Even more importantly, in so doing, Lord, you would, you would point us to your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that better? Can you hear me now? No? Can you turn it up? Sorry. It's the well-oiled machine that is RU out. There we go. All right. All right, again, as I do every week, uh, let me go ahead and give credit to men like Les Newsom, Tim Keller, and others uh, from whom I'm borrowing and adapting some of our material tonight. Um, but I want you to picture tonight, as we get started, I want you to picture, if I asked you to imagine the most holy person that you could think of, and not a specific person necessarily, but what does that person look like? Uh, the most... The person that's closest to God. I think that as I think that what we typically think of is somebody, maybe uh, a monk, right? Somebody uh, holed away in a monastery or on a mountaintop, you know, stuck in a cabin in Montana, something like that. Even those people end up mailing bombs to people, but somebody that sort of remove themselves from society and has has focused everything on, on their personal holiness, right? Um, I think if I asked you to imagine that, you know, the most holy person you could think of, the person that's closest to God, you might typically think of something like that, maybe. 
But I want to suggest to you tonight that the Bible actually says that, that quite the opposite is true. Is that, that is actually not a picture of holiness at all. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. But I think that, that we, maybe especially as Americans, tend to think of, of growing in grace or growing in holiness, right? The Bible calls that sanctification. The, the growing closer to God, then what that looks like, the way we do that, is by gathering information, right? We need, to, we need to know more good stuff. And then we need to take that information, process it, and apply it basically by working harder and doing better. And it really, it's, a, it's an internal, it's an exclusively internal process. Something we do in and of ourselves. And again, I want to suggest to you tonight that, that really that concept is foreign to the Bible. That the Bible actually teaches us that the way that we grow closer to God is actually in community with other people. That it is, in fact, actually in relationships which is what we're talking about this semester, right? The, I guess you could say the context in which God grows us is community. It's with other people. And that's what I want you to see tonight more than anything else. That we're sanctified. Again, uh, we, we grow closer to God. We change as people in the context of community with one another in relationship. Not alone, not hold off by ourselves in relationship to a, a body of people, right? Whether it be a, a, a church, um, all the way down, pairing it all the way down to just our individual relationships, even our dating relationships, and certainly marriage. And so tonight I want to look, uh, expand that point just a little bit more, and then look quickly at six, um, six ways that we see that at work. Six ways that God uses community and relationships to change us as people, to grow us. So again, uh, sanctification by community. God grows us, He changes us, He heals us, He restores us in the context of other people. I guess we could say that the relationships are sort of the field on which the game of our sanctification is played out, if that makes any sense. And we see it in our passage. Notice what John says here in verse 1. He's talking about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And he, he's fired up about it. And he wants these people to, uh, that he's writing to to know it, to know it better. And he wants, to, he wants to share it with them. And why? What does he say in verse 3? Verse 3. Uh, where is it? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. He wants them to understand the gospel, to grow in the gospel so that, so that they might have fellowship. He wants them, he wants his readers to be in meaningful community with one another. And why does he want that? Well, he wants that because John knows that true fellowship with God, if you're really going to be in fellowship with God, you will necessarily be in relationship with other people. That they're really not, they're not uh, mutually exclusive. If you're going to be in relationship with God, it's necessarily going to result in fellowship and relationship with other people. We see it in verse 3, again in verse 5, he says that God is light. And then in verse 7, John says, if you walk in that light, you will have fellowship. So I think that begs the question, what exactly does fellowship mean? 
Right, so this is where I prove to you that I went to seminary, right, that I'm qualified to talk about this. The Greek word is koinonia. Okay, koinonia. And it indicates some sort of deep commonality between people. Uh, a deep bond bet- between people where they share, uh, really where they share everything, where they hold things in common. And it's not just a, a superficial sharing. It's actually, when the Bible talks about koinonia, it's a very intimate sharing where everything is shared in the Bible's terms it's a connection with other people on on the very deepest of levels so I want to spend the rest of the the rest of tonight fleshing that out a little bit looking at these six ways how does God use community being amongst a body of people, being in relationship with one another to change us and to grow us. What does that look like? Again, I think it looks like these six things. Number one, one of the things that you'll see resulting from fellowship and one of the ways that God works on us through fellowship with one another is we see real friendship. We see real friendship beginning to develop. Why does real friendship develop? Well, it develops because... Because we have a common mission. If you're in community with other believers, it means that you, you share the same mission in life, your same fundamental purpose as, as they do. Right? And we've talked about it in previous weeks. Right? That, that fundamental purpose is to advance the kingdom of God. To see the glory of God spread throughout this world. To affect every whatever slice of the universe is yours, to see the kingdom of God come to bear on that, right? And so if you share the same ultimate mission with somebody else, if fundamentally you're about the same thing, it's going to create friendship. Because everything else, right, that might be different about you is going to tend to to fade into the background. Whatever other differences you might have with other people, if, if you're fundamentally about the same thing, then you're going to be friends. Things that you previously thought might make a difference are going to fade into the background for the sake of the, the greater good, right? Um, I'll give you an illustration. I think this is a fair illustration, right? This concept has spawned a whole genre of movies called the buddy movie, right? Are you familiar with this? Right? There's some sort of the plot is something like you take two people that are completely opposites. They don't like each other at the beginning of the movie. Uh, they're you know, polar opposites in every way. And you put them in some situation where they, they have the same goal. And by the end of the movie, they become best friends. Right? There are scads of movies that we could pull up, but I picked one of my favorites, Jerry Maguire. Has anybody seen Jerry Maguire? Okay. All right, so if you recall in Jerry Maguire... At the, at the outset of the movie, you have Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, who is outgoing. He is amazing. He's an amazing extrovert. Uh, he can do relationships on a superficial level like no one else can. But he's terrible at, at intimacy, at, at being really good friends with people. And then you have Rod Tidwell, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., the football player, who uh, is incredible at family relationships, right? At intimate relationships, he excels, but he can't get along with anybody else that he doesn't really know for anything in the world. 
And the two of them are put in the same, uh, basically their careers hang in the balance. And they're, they're tied together in the movie. And throughout the movie you see them, because their careers are in the balance together, they begin to put down all the other stuff that they didn't like about the other one. Right? The things that irritated them about the other one in the beginning of the movie, they begin to not worry so much about that because they have to keep their jobs. They have the same fundamental mission. And of course, by the end of the movie, they're best friends. And in fact, they've learned from one another. And what you see is this sort of great, um, uh, this great learning experience take place where you know, Jerry begins to learn how to relate to his family and you, know, you complete me and all that. And then uh, Rod begins to learn how to relate to the public. You get the idea. And so how much more should that be the case with people whose fundamental purpose in life, or whose fundamental common tie is that they know and are saved by the same God. If our fundamental, if our fundamental tie to one another is that we're known and loved and saved by Jesus Christ, then shouldn't that cause everything else to begin to fade into the background? Right? We would begin, I think, to put down our cultural differences, our... Um, our social differences, right? Everything else, whether, you know, Greek life or not, uh, whether you're black or white, whether you're rich or poor, all those things begin to fade into the background. But for our purposes, for relationships and, and dating and marriage and spe specifically, I want to make one application, mainly about dating. And I want to say this, it's only that kind of friendship that can make a marriage work make a marriage truly work. And we're going to talk a lot about this more in a couple weeks, but I want to mention it now. You're going to, here's the truth. You're going to marry somebody, if you get married, you're going to marry somebody that's different than you are. They're going to have, they're going to see the world a little differently. They're going to have quirks. They're going to have things that, that drive you nuts. Uh, you know, that's just the way it is. And if you don't have some sort of fundamental ultimate common ground with that person that's going to cause to that's going to put all those other little things in some sort of perspective then it's never going to work right if your ultimate goal in life and your fundamental purpose in life is different than that of your spouse it's it's doomed from the start right it's going to be a <laughs> Buckle up for a life of misery, I guess, just to put it bluntly. And so, I guess we could say it very plainly this way, that if you're a Christian, you can't marry a non-Christian. How, how could you bind your life to someone that fundamentally has a different understanding of reality than you do? I mean, the answer is you, you simply can't. I think the scriptures are clear about that in other places. And so if you're, if you're a Christian and we're not, you're not to marry a non-Christian, then it doesn't make any sense to date a non-Christian. And now look, I'm, I'm not saying that you should not be friends with non-Christians. Quite the opposite. You should be friends with non-Christians, right? And if, again, if you're a non-Christian and you're here, we're glad you're here. We want you to come back every week. We love you. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't be friends with non-Christians. I'm not saying that if somebody asks you on a date and you're not sure if they're a Christian, you have to say no, right? All I'm saying 
is that if you're a Christian, you can't marry a non-Christian and it doesn't make sense to date one. Okay, let's keep moving. We'll see real friendship, but we'll also see real commonality. Real commonality will emerge from, from fellowship. And God will use real commonality to change us. What do I mean by that? In the book of Acts, we see this word koinonia, and it's used to describe how the early church, the, the first church, they shared everything. They literally, everything they owned, they pictured as not uh, really their own possession, but it was their resource that was really for the good of everybody else. If somebody needed money uh, and you had a land, sell the land and use that money for the person that needed it. Right? Being in, real, being in a relationship with other people gives us the opportunity to serve other people. To share with other people. To give of ourselves. Right? To give up our time and our money and our stuff and our energy for the sake of somebody else. You've got, to be in, you've got to be in relationship with people to be able to do that. And that's exactly what growing in holiness looks like. If you want to grow closer to God, that's what it looks like, right? We, you begin to give. You begin to look at other people at, and serve. Because that's exactly what God's done for us, right? Jesus gave up the comfort and the glories and all the resources, so to speak, of heaven, for us. It's the beauty of the gospel that we talk about every week. And if we don't involve ourselves in the lives of other people, then we rob ourselves of the opportunity of serving other people like Jesus did. It, really, we won't be able to carry out the, the second greatest commandment. You remember a guy asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he, he doesn't really answer his question like he wants. He answers... He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What's the one great commandment? Uh, here they are, right? Here are the two great commandments. You, you, because Jesus really can't separate them. Because if you love God and are loved by God, you're necessarily going to love people. And you can't love people. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you're not in relationship with other people. I'll give you an illustration of that. Amy and I, as most of you saw, have a two-year-old boy who's just cute as a button, um, which is an odd statement because buttons aren't really cute. He's a cute kid. And it doesn't take long to realize that it's sort of hard to teach an only child. We have another one coming, right? But it's hard to teach an only child not to be selfish. Real early on, Amy and I are playing with Miles in the playroom. And if he, you know, if I'm holding some sort of toy and he wants that toy, you know, he reaches and just takes it from me. What, what do I care? I don't want it. Like, of course you can have it, right? But you can't do that in the nursery. We talked about that last week. You can't go around snatching stuff from people. And so we, it's pretty early on, we, we decided, you know, if possible, we need to have another kid. He needs to learn to share. He needs to have some sort of, you know, as it were, for the sake of this illustration, some community to, to live that out. And so as an application, I guess I would ask, I'd ask you this. Do you look at your relationships with other people, even your dating relationship? Do you look at your Do you look at that relationship as an opportunity to serve somebody else? Or do you look at it as an opportunity to meet your needs? 
You look at your boyfriend and girlfriend, uh, your, your roommate even, uh, your sorority sisters, fraternity brothers, whatever. Do you look at those relationships as an opportunity to love somebody else, to use your resources for them? Or do you really just look at it as something to meet your needs? Thirdly, we see real friendship, we see real commonality, but also we need, we, we'll see that God works on us. Uh, we have to recognize that we have real problems. True fellowship is marked by a recognition of real problems. John's pretty straightforward in our passage, uh, verse 8 and 10. Wait, verses 8 and 10. Uh, he says, if we do not have sin, if you say that you do not have sin, then you are a liar, right? One of the fundamental aspects of this kind of community, this kind of relationship that the Bible talks about, is that it's a community that recognizes why it's together in the first place, right? And, and the, reason that, the reason it's together is because we are messed up. Because of sin, we are broken and we have, we have real problems. We're, we're screw-ups. We're people that needed Jesus to rescue us. And then we, we cling to the only hope that the only, only way that I'm going to change, the only way that I have been changed, that I'm going to get any better, is that Jesus is going to do it. Because I'm messed up. Even as a Christian, my life is still a wreck. And so it, this kind of community, it, it gives us the ability more and more to look at ourselves and to be honest. To be honest about our sin and say, you know what, I don't have it all together. And if you know, if you know that about yourself, the more that you begin to own that and own your sin, it's going to change how you relate to other people. And we've said this before. How's it going to change you? We've said this before. It's going to change you because you're going to tend to look at other people and your relationships with them, you know, like your boyfriend or girlfriend, and, and default to thinking that the biggest problem here is me and not you. That you know yourself well enough to know, I've got a, I've got a deep ingrained problem that's called sin. And the real problems in my relationship are not out there and not them, and if they would change, but it's here. It's me. And if you don't know that, then it's just never going to really work. You have to know the truth of your own sin. Fourthly, we see real problems, and really, very similarly, in true community, you're going to see real genuineness. And in fact, real genuineness is going to change us. God's going to use it to change us. Being in actual real community with one another looks like confessing your sins to other people. And this is not comfortable to talk about. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive, our, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's certainly, certainly that means in relationship to God, Right? But it doesn't just mean in relationship to God. Remember, the context of this whole passage is that of community, relationship with other people. And if you don't believe me, James 5.16 spells it out even more explicitly. It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
We need to confess our sins to one another. Now, I'm not saying you confess, you confess all your sins to everybody, right? Of course not. But being in community with one another, it means that we're going we're gonna to share ourselves with other people, with some other people. And God's going to use that to change us. How would he do that? How does that happen? Two ways. Number one, it helps us to restore relationships when we confess our sins. You know, I mean, simply just, just think about it in, in a dating relationship. The more you're able to confess your sins, so to speak, to say, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. And to ask, to apologize to people, to ask people for forgiveness. I mean, it's, obviously you know what that can do to a relationship, right? How much better it would be. Um, it will restore our relationships. The second way, confessing our sins to one another, it brings healing and growth by involving other people. You say it this way, you have to let other people in on your sin or it will not change. Now that sounds crazy and it definitely sounds and is contrary to the way that we tend to think. Because we tend to think, all right, if we're going to be, if I'm going to relate to other people, I'm definitely not going to show them that stuff. Am I right? There are definitely things about me that I need to clean up first before I begin to let anybody see. But the problem with that is it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It'll actually probably only create more problem, create more shame that you'll want to hide from people. And so what we need to do, what the Bible calls us to do in our relationships, is to confess to one another. To bring it out into the light. To be genuine about our struggles. Stop putting on the show for one another. And can't, can you imagine what it would be like, right, just to be part of a group where just for a little while, for just a little while, everybody just kind of put it all down. You know, everybody just kind of got off of it. Quit putting on the... You know, the everything's fine here face. And we're just honest with each other. If people quit putting up the charade and they actually said, you know what, no, I, I'm not okay. I'm actually really screwed up. I've got, some, I've got some problems and I need some help. Right? You need to bring it out into the light. You need to confess it. Um, because you can't do it by yourself. I can't do it by myself. You need to... You need somebody else to come alongside you. Um, yeah. Number five. Fifthly. In real community, in a real relationship, you're going to see real confrontation. Sort of the flip side of confessing to people. Real community looks like actually loving people enough to, be, to being willing to confront them about sin in their life. To say hard things to people and to say it in love. To care about somebody enough to be willing to endure a little awkwardness because you care about them. And why would we do that? Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. All right, in that passage, God tells us that marriage is for, marriage is for the, the other person's sanctification. 
That, that when you go into marriage, your goal is to see that other person grow in holiness. Because that's what Jesus did. And so do you, in your relationships, do you care enough about the, the other person to tell them the hard things? Do you care enough about your boyfriend to tell him that sometimes he's a jerk and he needs to look at that? Or do you care enough about your roommate to tell them that you really think they have a drinking problem and they need to, they need to look into that? Or can you tell your, do you, do you love somebody enough to be able to tell them, you know, I listened to you talk about your roommate, and I, I think you hate your roommate. And I don't think that's a good thing. And now here, you know, here's where what we talked about, about knowing your own sin comes into play, right? Because you have to, you have to know your own sin to be able to confront somebody. To confront somebody in love. Heard it uh, put this way. When you cut, right, when you cut into somebody's life, can, can you cut with a scalpel, right? Can you make a, a careful incision? Or do you cut with a butter knife? Right? The more you know your own sin, the more you'll be able to cut into someone's life cleanly, carefully and lovingly. I had a friend who told me about his first date with the girl that he went on to marry. And he said there was this moment on the date where he sort of, came to this realization that I, th- I think this girl is the one. And he said, here, here it is. For some reason, I, I'm pretty sure they were eating hot dogs, which not the most romantic first date ever, but whatever. And as they were, as they were finishing, she looks over at him and she says, you, you've got some mustard on your face right here. And he said it was... It was kind of awkward, and he was embarrassed, and it, you know, it kind of made it a deal because she said that. But he said, it's, you know, after that instance of thinking, oh gosh, this is awkward, he thought, that was awesome. The fact that she cares enough, so to speak, about me to be willing to endure that awkwardness and say, hey, you know what? I care about you. I don't want you walking around looking like an idiot with mustard on your face. You have some mustard on your face right there. And he said, he, he thought to himself, I need to marry this girl. And he did. Not, not right then, but later. No, that's real confrontation. That's sort of a silly, small thing. But you get the idea. Lastly and finally, one of the main ways that we're going to be sanctified, that God's going to grow us by being in community and in relationship, is by experiencing real forgiveness. Real forgiveness. Now certainly through receiving forgiveness... We're going to experience God's love, you know, uh, sort of an illustration of what God's done for us, right, when someone forgives us. But we've already talked about that. Uh, what about extending forgiveness to somebody? If we're going to be in real relationship with other people, if we're going to expose our lives to other people and open ourselves up, it means that people are going to sin against us. And we're going to be called to forgive people. We're going to have to extend forgiveness. So what does it mean? What does forgiveness mean? Well, I think what we typically tend to think of forgiveness as is simply forgetting about what happened, right? That we just pretend like it didn't happen uh, and, and we just sort of move on. And I want to suggest to you that that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness, I would say it this way, forgiveness is not making that, the other person pay for what they did. 
you know, we, we all know how it goes, right? We all like to keep an account. Life is basically a big game, and you need points to win, right? You've got to have points uh, to, know that, to know that you're valuable, that you're okay, right? Wherever you can find your points, you scrape them together. And if somebody takes points from you in whatever form or fashion, we want to make them pay. When somebody wrongs us and they, they attack our merit, our self-worth, whatever it is, we hold that against them. And they need to pay. They owe us. But real fellowship, real, being in real relationship means that when somebody attacks us, when somebody wrongs us, that we don't, we don't make them pay. It's the only way that real relationship can work. Because if we don't, people are going to sin against us. And if we don't forgive, we're going to become bitter. Right? This is how relationships spiral out of control. Um, and not even necessarily quickly. The more and more somebody sins against us, the more we put in their, you know, in their uh, debt column. You owe me a little bit more. You owe me a little bit more. And on and on. And they rack up debt. And so the... If we're going to actually have a real relationship with somebody, then that buck has to stop somewhere, right? It just can't go on forever. And I know what you're, you know, some of you are probably thinking there's you know, no way. Not her, not him, not for that. And I, I get that. But if we're not in community, if we're not relating to other people, then we're going to be robbed of the experience of forgiving other people. And now that might sound strange. But if we miss out on forgiving other people, then you're missing out on one of the main ways that God, God teaches you about His own heart. And how is that? Because obviously the truth of the matter is, if we're left up to ourselves, there's no way I'm going to forgive you. Because those points are mine and I need them. And I'll do anything to get them back. And so will you. It's impossible to forgive other people unless you see what verse 9 says is true. Unless you see that as we confess our sins, that God really is faithful and just to forgive us. That, that God is a God that does not make you pay. The only way that you, you and I are going to be able to actually look at other people that sin against us and say, you know what? I'm not going to make you pay for that. Is to know that, that God has given you an infinite amount of points, so to speak. That God has given you a self-worth in His Son, Jesus Christ, that is unparalleled, and that you have all the resources in the, in the universe to draw from. And if you have a wealth that's unimaginable, when someone takes it from you, it's okay. The more wealth that you the more wealth that you feel you have in Jesus, the more you're able to say, you know what? You can take that in, and I can even give more. Because we owed God everything and He said, I'm not going to make you pay. Somebody has to pay, but it won't be you. Because you can never pay it enough. And obviously, as we talk about week in and week out, that that person that, that did that paid for us is Jesus Christ. That He gave of Himself everything so that we don't have to pay. And it's only beginning to draw from that resource that's going to help us 
at all begin to forgive other people. To be honest with our sins, to love others enough to confront them and to be able to extend forgiveness. Do you know him? He's offered to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't naturally operate like that at all. Quite honestly, we would rather pull ourselves away by ourselves or we would rather be in a room full of people and really only know people superficially. But God, we confess that we don't like to get to know people very well on, on a deep level. Because we're afraid what people will see. We're afraid of the truth. And yet, Lord Jesus, you have crafted a salvation for us that offers us the opportunity to know that as bad as the truth is, the truth of our sin, the truth of your grace and mercy is, is even better. So Lord, we pray that you would change us by that grace and mercy. That you would make us come to understand that we have a wealth that's unimaginable from which to draw from. Lord, so that we might actually begin to love other people. But only because we've first been loved by you. Jesus, we pray you would make that true of us tonight. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, let's stand for one last song.